Welcome to Bill Roden on Sports. Taking you inside clubhouses, locker rooms, and boardrooms. Legendary sports columnist Bill Roden gets inside the heads and beneath the veneer of the men and women who play and own the games we love. So you guys came and you were eavesdropping. Yeah, this is Bill Rose's astrological segment. Now, hey everybody, this is this is uh, Bill Roden, and welcome to another segment of Bill Roden on Sports. I've uh, got uh, a, a really wonderful guest. I'd like to uh, uh, thank first of all, acknowledge um, my sports attorney friend um, Jamal Murphy, right here to my right. Great to be here, of course. All right, and uh, Brian Delindig, wherever you are. My wine guy, hello, uh, and uh, uh, Pat, hi, how are you doing, our producer? Uh, but my special guest, a really, 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 really good friend. For those of you who've loved uh, the National Football League, uh, and you've been reading USA Today uh, for the last 23 years, uh, the name Jared Bell probably has become like a household name. Uh, you see it, Jared uh is an NFL columnist for USA Today. He's been the columnist for uh, for 23 years. Um, I count him as one of my closest friends in the industry. We have some of our best conversations outside of press boxes and hallways at 2 in the morning. Uh, but anyway, uh, just a, a great guy, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful uh, journalist, uh, the great uh, Jared Bell. Jared, welcome to Bill Roden on Sports. Wow, I really appreciate that <laughs> intro, but let me just back up for a second. You got a wine guy? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, he who actually... Um, it's okay. No, no, no. Here, <laughs> you, you'll get you'll get your bottle of wine. Uh, you know, you hear the hear the Brian wherever you are. Yeah. Just because you're not here doesn't mean you know. You still have your duties you still to, to uh, yeah. take care Everybody, of. Very impressive. Everybody's got a role to play. <laughs> um, so how you doing? Uh, everything is wonderful, man. How are you doing? You're here for the NFL meetings. Yeah. So what's what what goes on? Now? What what uh, what what happens? Are they going to talk about that game last night uh, when? Uh, when Seattle was, a, was Seattle wasn't robbed again. Detroit, 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 was, Detroit was robbed. Was robbed right? You're a homeboy because you're from Detroit. Oh yeah. How could yeah. you let that happen? Man? Yeah, it yeah. seems like a pattern, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you think about that playoff game oh. at Dallas last year. Oh. That obvious. Oh, I forgot about that. That's right. Pass interference wow. at the end of the game. Uh, you know, I reached out to somebody on the competition committee and made the suggestion. Yeah, I know you guys are going to talk about this at this meeting because the competition committee always gives a report at these meetings. They have a fall meeting. They have their big meeting in the off season in March. Then they have another smaller meeting in the spring and say May. And then they have this meeting mm-hmm. during the season. And they there's nothing that they're going to vote on at this meeting. Sometimes that has been the case where yeah. they voted on Super Bowls and things like that. So for this meeting, a lot of discussion about Los Angeles and right. the progress of where that's going, uh, situation with the player discipline and how they may tweak the policy with all of these lawsuits that keep taking Roger Goodell to, to court. Right. But, yes, there is always that conversation about what's happening with the game on the field, and the competition committee will give its report. So I don't know if this is going to be added to their agenda. It should, right. but it will definitely – uh, generate some discussion in the hallways, <laughs> and, uh, and from the media people for sure. Oh, whatever. what did you think about that? I mean, you watched the game. What, what did you think of that? Uh, the, the play we're talking about for those who are in the Himalayas or something was um, uh, Megatron Calvin Johnson um, mm-hmm. was headed to what we all thought was probably the winning score. Mm-hmm. Then you know, uh, the Camp Chancellor uh, hit a you know hit him ball, squirted out. Fumble, but then um, tell, tell us what happened. Yeah, KJ Wright uh-huh. bats the ball out of the end zone intentionally, uh-huh. which is a penalty. Right. And so, by rule, the possession should have gone back to Detroit at the one yard line, or actually inside the one where they would have had another crack at scoring. The official, the back judge, uh, a guy by the name of Greg Bishop, 
had a clear view of it. I mean, right. yeah, they you see, can see right there. I mean, he's looking at just like I'm looking at you. He's right. like, oh I'm, yeah. And if it, he didn't see that, then you really question his competency <laughs> as a back judge because you've got to make that call. And now you wonder whether or not because it looked like he was ready to reach for his flag and then decided not to. And that's where you wonder. He, he remembered he had well, somebody on fan, on DraftKings. That was on his hot, fantasy. Hot button <laughs> issue. Oh yeah. Well. <laughs> I mean, you know, we've heard so much about integrity of the game in the NFL right. with the uh, offseason scandal involving the Patriots and deflated footballs. But the other part of integrity of the game that the NFL always needs to try to protect is the whole idea that the games are being played on the up and up. Right. And right. so I mentioned that play at Dallas last year. I had people from Detroit, of course, my hometown, calling right. and say, hey, was the fix on? Right, right, <laughs> because right. Because the, the NFL would rather see the Cowboys in the next round of the playoffs yeah, right. than the Lions. And, right. Um, but still in all, integrity of the game means clean officiating, consistent officiating, and of course, they are human beings and they're not always going to get it right, but when you see a blunder like that, and this time in Seattle without the replacement refs, exactly, you really wonder whether or not the guy had the, the right temperament to be in that position even if he might be a bit intimidated by the 12s there at Century League Field, right. you have to make that call. They have to get it right. So there will be discussion about expanding instant replay because that was the bottom line is that this was challenged. a play that was, yeah, it couldn't be challenged, couldn't be reviewed by instant replay. And there's been a lot of discussion. Bill Belichick, you know, mm-hmm. we know is loved and adored by the people in the league office. Uh-huh. <laughs> Tongue in cheek. But he made a proposal and he, I think he's done it on multiple occasions where I know what his position is, is that any and all plays should be reviewable. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to have 100 challenges that you can use them on. You'll still have, you know, two challenges perhaps, uh, perhaps and then you have to save it to use it. But the idea is that any type of play that occurs on a football field should be reviewable. The one thing that they did when they tweaked the the instant replay rule uh, a couple of years ago was that they kind of took the scoring and turnover plays right, out right. of the hands of the coaches, which right. was good for the coaches because every scoring play, automatic review. Every right. turnover, automatic review. So right. you can save your challenges for other situations. Right, right. But Belichick's point and some other people in the league think that it should be expanded at least to the point where you can kind of correct the obvious mistakes because the bottom line needs to be get it right. Get it right, or an obvious mistake and also a mistake that, that can change the game. You know, oh. for you know, for from a win to a loss. Oh yeah, anything no like that needs to be reviewed. Yeah, we saw a situation years ago, and Bill, you remember this? What Dennis Erickson loses job over like a a a, a bungle play at the goal line. Somebody mm-hmm. fumbled. I want to say it was Vinny Testaverde, or somebody fumbled or didn't fumble, and right, got right, it wrong. Right, and right, right. <laughs> Coach ended up getting right, fired, right, and the whole right. thing. And so those are the dark ages because you you yeah. didn't even have. There's no chance of instant replay. Right? Yeah, and now you've got all the technology. You've got better angles, and and but, but yeah, even though even with all that, even with all of that, you got to play like that. You know, yesterday, and you know, I mean, anybody, you hate to see that kind of stuff. And and I, I mean, I, I was kind of mentioning DraftKings and all that because you know that's a hot story. <laughs> yeah. Today, in fact, uh, you know, the, the New York Times had it on the front page. In fact. Which is why we're not going to read a DraftKings uh, thing tonight, today, ever, as a matter of fact. Sorry, Jamal, we'll talk about that later, because I know that you're yeah. a big fantasy guy. I got to do it in the privacy of my own home, I See, guess. I'm not a fantasy guy. I don't know how you feel, Jay. I mean, we spend all our lives... What, no, wait, do you have a fantasy team? Yeah, I do. <laughs> there you go. I lost this week, too. <laughs> but, but I've had times when I um, was totally against playing fantasy football, so I've kind of done it both well, ways. What happened? What, 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 I, what brought you to the dark side? Um, <laughs> yeah, all right, the dark side playing, right? <laughs> playing again. Yeah, one of my buddies has a 20-team league. That's, that's, that's tough. Yeah, yeah, that's a tough thing because when, when an injury happens, it's not like you can go out and get some starting quarterback to replace the quarterback you have. So it's ultra-competitive. So, my, you know, my na- the name of my team, though, you'd love that, Bill. This might be the only thing you'll like about fantasy football. <laughs> My team is called Marion Motley Crew. Oh wow! Yeah, wow, the Marion Motley Crew. Yeah, and right. we're three and one right now, and um, we'll see. Well, do people, <laughs> do, yeah, the, you need to you need to stop and tell people Marion Motley. I mean, this is going to lead to a whole nother discussion, but mm-hmm. tell them this is really important uh, to tell people who Marion Motley is, and and it kind of ties into 
a project you're working on, but people need to know who Marion Motley is. Oh, no question. You know, Marion Motley was one of the four men who reintegrated pro football in 1946. And it's one of the most fascinating stories about the history of football where there was a color line for mm-hmm. 12 years. And you had African-American players who played in the NFL at the inception in 1920, including right. Fritz Pollard, who was a, a player coach. But all of a sudden, around 1933, you had zero black players in the NFL. And most people will will tell you that that was because of George Preston Marshall, who was an avowed racist owner of the Washington you know what? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. He was the guy who yeah. who named the Burgundy and Gold the, the Washington. You, you, you know, know what? <laughs> and so um, it went on for a, a dozen years plus until the All America Football Conference was formed. Mm-hmm. All American Football Conference was formed in 1946 as a rival to the NFL with the Cleveland Browns. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that that conference did was gained some instant credibility by hiring Paul Brown Mm. as the coach. So you've got this new league starting up, and then you've got the NFL starting up, and the NFL actually moved first on this, and it's a a pretty interesting scenario, too, when you think about how it happened, but Kenny Washington, who was Mm. a star running back at UCLA, but Mm. after his playing career, Almost had a shot at the NFL. He played in the college all-star game. Remember when the the college all-stars would play the the Super Bowl, the the championship team? Well, Kenny Washington played in that game in Chicago. George Papa Bear Hallis said, hey, stay in Chicago. I want to sign you. And then Papa Bear Hallis went to his other NFL owners, his colleagues, to, to try to get clearance to sign Kenny Washington, and it didn't happen. And that was in 1940. Hmm. And hmm. so six years later, Kenny Washington, his body was was broken down, basically, compared to what it once was, because he played semi-pro ball. But the, the Rams franchise moved from Cleveland, with the Browns moving into Cleveland, but the Cleveland Rams moved to Los Angeles, and a group of black sports writers really kind of led the charge hmm. to say, hey, wait a minute. If you want to play in the L.A. Coliseum, it's a public facility financed with public dollars. You cannot discriminate against uh, African-Americans or any class of people. And that was kind of the the foundation for how the Rams were compelled to sign Kenny Washington. And then consequently, a, a few weeks later, they signed Woody Strode mm-hmm. as his Roommate, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, teammate right, right. who had played with with uh, with Kenny Washington and Jackie Robinson, by the way, at UCLA. And and one one more note about Kenny Washington that put it in perspective, Bill. In 1939, I think it was, he led the nation in total yards. He was like first team All America and all of that, and um, really led UCLA to a fabulous season. It. The fact that he got bypassed for a chance to play in the NFL was like it was or would have been had Reggie Bush came out of (laughs) USC and not had a chance to play. I mean, that's how ridiculous it was. Meanwhile, in the AAFC, Paul Brown signed Bill Willis, who was a player that Paul had coached at Ohio State on his, one of his national championship teams. And Bill Willis was only out of football for a year and was coaching. And he got an opportunity to go to Cleveland, try it out, made all sorts of impressions right off the bat. And then a few days later, Marion Motley, who also played for Paul Brown at Great Lakes Naval Academy, was signed. Mm-hmm. And so there you had the breakthrough, two in the NFL, two in the new AAFC. And from that point... The, the 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 log jam was broke. Well, the, the barrier was broken. I should say. Hmm, that's a great story. Why? Why? You, you know, people, you know, our, our friend and colleague Brad Pye mm-hmm. was oh, yeah. one of the, one of the reporters, the black reporters in L.A. at the Sentinel. Yeah. Right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, t- I talked to, to to Brad Pye for 
this project that I've been working on for a while, which is basically to to tell the story mm-hmm. in, in book form. I mean, we, mm-hmm. I worked as part of a, a team that did a documentary that premiered on on Epics last year, The mm-hmm. Forgotten Four, mm-hmm. and and we interviewed uh, Pi for that as well. But Brad Pi, you just love to to talk to him about anything, especially in a, in a historical context. But the one thing that kind of sticks out from what I remember from talking to him is really describing how great Kenny Washington was. And so Brad Pye back in the late 30s, early 40s was a teenager, right? But he mm-hmm. broke into the newspaper business and so he was always around. He had it all in context. And to hear him talk about what a phenomenal athlete Kenny Washington was. I mean, Kenny Washington was a guy who could not only um, run like your best running back, but he could throw a football 90 <laughs> yards. And, and, and 90, 90 yards. yards. And the reason why I'm so confident to say that it was 90 yards is because in the midst of my research, um, I went over to NFL Films, and, mm. and thanks to the great, the late, great Steve Sable, he gave me some access and had some people help me look at some stuff. And they had some, they didn't have a lot of footage of these guys, but one of the things that they had was footage of Kenny Washington throwing 90 yards. It wasn't in a game, it was kind of in a practice mm-hmm. right. um, scenario. Let's see how far he can throw the ball. 90 wow. yards in the air, okay? <laughs> wow, 90 yards, 90 yards. Yeah, I don't, I don't care get, where you throw it. I don't care where you throw it. You know, you know uh, so what, how far are you along on the project, on the book? I know uh, I, I, I asked you this in the press. Box. I know, <laughs> and I think I've done probably 90% of the research, and I, and the reason why I, I leave some, some air there is because there are, there are already a couple things I say, okay, I want to go back and find out more about this or mm-hmm. that. And so when you're in, a, in the process of, of writing and in the process of, of putting something together, it's, it's a great exercise in discovery because right, right, you right. always find out things that you did not know right. along the way. And I've, I've found some, some fascinating nuggets about all of these individuals as I've, as I've pursued this. Now, in terms of how far along we're going to get on it. We're going to get this thing completed, hopefully within the next few months, maybe a year. And I think it will time up perfectly with the, um, the, the reemergence of the NFL in Los Angeles. I mean, that's, and we talked about the NFL meetings, and that's something that they'll talk about, whether there will be one team, two teams, what the timetable is for Los Angeles. But we know that the NFL is headed back to Los Angeles. Well, how, how do you think it's going to play out? I, I think the Rams are going to be the team. And, and the reason why now, – now, the Chargers are interesting because – their owner Dean Spanos or their, their I chairman. I don't want to see the charge in LA. Well, but but here's the here's the thing. You know, when you start talking about the NFL and um, getting things done, it's it can be so political. And so, you know, Dean Spanos will tell you that more than 25% of the Chargers season ticket base comes from Southern California and mm. most notably Orange County. Mm. And so the the Chargers position has always been that we kind of own part of this Los Angeles market. Now you can debate that a couple different ways and I'm sure the Rams and Stan Kroenke <laughs> have done that as well. So they have to get that ironed out. Sometimes a relocation fee could take care of ironing that out. But um, point being that the Chargers are a factor here and they've got their plan with the Raiders to to build a stadium in Carson that competes with Stan Kroenke's plan to build a stadium in Englewood. But here's the difference, Bill. Stan Kroenke can go and put that stadium up and they've already cleared the land and Mm. it's it's ready to, to, to rock in terms of, you know, what has to be done from a construction standpoint. Stan Kroenke can do that without public dollars. And when you talk about the reason why there is not a new stadium in Los Angeles or there hasn't been one in 20 years or even longer than that, actually, it's because of the, the, the philosophical position of the people in California when it comes to funding stadiums. Now, they've done it for some baseball teams. People will tell you that there have been some new baseball stadiums built and there's been a combination of you know, public and private dollars. But for the NFL, it has been you know, really you know, a, a roadblock for them right. getting something done. And Stan Kroenke's plan does not rely on its viability being attached to having public dollars. And so, um, and it's it's got all sorts of fabulous retail stuff attached Ooh. to it, too. And, you know, Stan Kroenke's 
like I said, he has the juice and he has the the resources to get it done. So that's why I say the Rams are the front runner in this whole thing. Who's going to take their place in St. Louis? <laughs> right. Well, the Raiders end up there. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. One, one team that I think is a, a dark horse for St. Louis mm. is Jacksonville. Mm. Okay. Now, mm. Shad Khan, their owner, really ca- kind of grew up from his time in the United States in that St. Louis area. I mean, St. Louis is almost like his American home. And um, that just kind of always sticks in the back of my mind is maybe he'd be the guy to go back into St. Louis when you talk about coming from a market in Jacksonville that has not been very successful. Now, the one thing that Khan has done over the past few years, which I think is very smart on his part, is he has kind of signed up for London. And so, I was just thinking about that. Yeah, he yeah. signed up yeah, for London, yeah, yeah. And, and you're talking about a guy who has a global presence anyway. Right. Th- that's something that I think he really saw as 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 um, almost essential moving forward with his team. So they'll play a game in London every year, and they they sign like a four year deal, and he wants to extend that out even further. So I don't know if that would be something that would preclude him from, say, moving his franchise to St. Louis because, hey, maybe you can um, play in St. Louis and still play games in London. But um, I, I think that's one team that I would keep an eye on. The Raiders are always going to be in a conversation because they don't have a stadium in Oakland and it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Now, if they get a situation where they join forces with the Chargers in Southern California, obviously that would, would would be something for them. But I I just don't know if that's going to happen. And then what Oakland would not Oak, Oakland's got to have a team. I mean, it'd be like un-American for Oakland. You, you not know, to have well they were in, they were in L.A. For yeah, a while, but so. that was un-American. That was un-American <laughs> period of the uh, of the NFL when Oakland wasn't there. Yeah, but you know you know what I think what might be a solution for the Raiders is to have them become the second tenant at the 49ers Stadium. Their mm. fan base is in Northern California. Some people would have to swallow some pride <laughs> and suck it up a little bit, yeah. but maybe you put them in as a second team. Now, when that's been discussed in the past or brought up in the past, both the 49ers and the Raiders have kind of you know, squashed yeah. that idea. But I think when you're talking about the reality of moving forward and, and, and generating revenue, which is what is you know a part of this, I think that's something that might wind up on the table at some point if the Raiders don't end up in Southern California. Well, you know, you're here in New York, you've got the Just Giants. Right. Yeah. You know, which is kind of different. I mean, there's there's not the same type of vitriol and hate and I guess you might call it hatred mm-hmm. between the Jets and the Giants as they're in between and tradition uh, between the 49ers and Oakland. I mean, that's that's just all. I, well, even when you said that, that's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> just, I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, Al Davis would just be haunting. Yeah. That you right. cannot do. Let, let me let me because uh, I know the people who are watching. The people are still frothing. They want to hear football and and. Uh, but I want to. I just want to mention one thing. You talked about um, uh, Brad Pye, and we talked about the. And and when you said that, you know, people don't understand particularly those of us who have a certain age who are black journalists, why that thing about crusading and whatever is so important because, you know, my mentor was Sam Lacey. Mm. And, you know, Sam Lacey and Wendell Smith and all that, I mean, I kind of grew up with that thing that your role as a black journalist is you don't have the luxury to, you know, like, oh, I just happen to be black and I kind of bullshit. No, that it's really, there's this mission. You know, like a lot of our colleagues in the lock, you know, in the dressing room, up in the press box, cracking jokes and one-liners, and you know, drinking beer. And in other words, and I was saying they don't. I, I feel I don't have the luxury to do that, but, but it's because of people like Brad Pye, Sam Lacey, who who are crusading to continue to make things equal. So, so a guy like Kenny Washington, who, like you were saying, it was just think of a guy like Reggie Bush, who couldn't play. Right. Yeah, you know, and f- and f- it's almost unfathomable yeah. right now to right. think that something like that can right. happen, especially <laughs> with the all exposure that we're getting right. in football and college football. Right, and it turns whatever league you have that that excludes those people it becomes a sham. That league is not real. Right. Like the best players are somewhere else. Exactly. Right, right, right. Yeah. right. So anyway, having got that out of my system, but but <clears throat> but let me just um, touch on that for a quick second because Bill, I know what you're saying. I mean, times have definitely changed, but. Mm-hmm. Only so much. And so there are stories that uh, some people are more compelled to write about, to 
to explore. And, you know, crusade is a strong word, but sometimes it's not even about crusading. It's about just giving certain people a voice that might not get a voice to tell their story. And that's why diversity is important in society at large, but definitely in the media where people are exposed to so many things just because it's on television or it's on radio or it's on your podcast <laughs> or it's in print or it's online you know all the forms of of communication and all the platforms that are there now there still has to be some diversity right. there in terms of having different thoughts and and enlightening people right. that, that's part of right. it too right. and, and you, yeah, in you particular, yeah, particularly in in, a, in sports where you're you're talking about and the story is you know a large percentage black Hispanic minorities, and you need diversity, uh, diverse, uh, diversified uh, people telling those stories. You know, not just not just white journalists. You know, trying to guess. You know what what this person's culture is, who's playing the game. Well, well, yeah. well the new thing I was having this uh, debate with an editor because we talking about like you know I didn't know black reporters on a particular you know staff, and you know the, the whole new I said this kind of whole new racism as well. You know, diversity doesn't just mean black and white, we could have a person from the South and a person or left-handed from the Marine, you know, they could define diversity in a way that continues to define black people out. So I think what you have to do now is that you got to be very specific. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about black people. How many black people do you have on your staff? I'm not talking about the, the policeman from no, from Northern Dakota and the person who can't read from the Alps. No, I'm talking about how many black people do you have on your staff? Spare me the diversity bullshit, you know. And, and I think that, that a lot of people are kind of uncomfortable we're doing that, but I just, just just think about if you feel uncomfortable as a young black, what do you think Kenny? How do you think Kenny Washington people in that era felt? Oh no doubt. How no, do you think no, people like our parents and their grandparents? How how uncomfortable do you think they felt? Yeah, you know what? <laughs> I, I had a conversation with Jim Brown not too long ago. I was out in California, and and I asked him um, how it felt if he could tell me how it felt to be a black man back when he was in his heyday, back mm. when he first came into the NFL. And the thing that he said that was just so striking, um, and, and I'll paraphrase it uh, as best I can, but he said, you know, you had to kind of walk and, and, and try to figure out who you were dealing with in every single situation that you encountered. Okay, is this person going to treat me fairly or not? And you had to kind of size up right. the the white person that you were dealing with to find out where they stood before you really knew exactly how to deal with them. And maybe that I'm sure that in some ways and in, in, in fashions we do that all the time as we deal with people. Right. Any of us do that, black, right. white, or whatever. But at that time, I, I just thought that was just um, you know so revealing about what it was like to grow up at a time when there was you know overt racism and and subtle racism right along with right. it. And that was Jim Brown. I mean, think about just the regular guy. I mean, <laughs> I, was, yeah, I was great Jim yeah. Brown. He was pretty good at it. Yeah, he was. Yeah. We, we had, uh, well, that's another, um, because we, that, that can go on and on and on. I, but I was having a conversation with some people yesterday at the Times Bill, in fact, and uh, they were saying, do you think if you look at 1865 to now, do you think uh, as a percentage basis, what percentage has it gotten better than it was then. And when we really were thinking about stuff- Percentage like, basis. Well, just just what percent has it gotten demonstrably right. better? And, and and the question is, how much better has it gotten? And we, I was thinking about this, you think about Ferguson, you think about a lot of stuff. And I was thinking, I don't, I, you know, you think, well, you have a black president and all that, but you think of all the other stuff that's going on. You know, uh, the lack of a black presence in a lot of different places where there were some black people, now y'all be none. And then, with, I don't know, maybe, it maybe hasn't been as great a progress as you really think. I mean, um, right. you know, I mean, it's been some, but you look at it. Okay, let's just look at sport. Like, look at the National Football League. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, the league is what they say, what, maybe 60, 70, 70%, 70%. 70%. Okay, now it's been 70% for a long time, Jared. It, mm-hmm. it had just been like two years. It's been 70% black for a long time. Mm-hmm. So you would think in a normal, per, you know, percolation of stuff, a whole lot of stuff would be black. Coaching staffs, head coaches, front offices, 
I mean, there would be a whole bunch of black folks. But you don't have a whole bunch of black folks. You have some black. How many, how many black head coaches do you have? I'd have to count right but now. You, but, but you, got, you, you got, probably have about four or five, maybe. Yeah. What about GMs? Uh, you have you have more than you used to. You probably have at least a half dozen. Mm-hmm. Six, yeah, yeah, five or six maybe. But, I, I haven't done a head count here. I right, right. To, but we, 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 this, this is like a surprise exam. <laughs> <laughs> like a, this is queer. But my point is that that's okay. But if you just look at the over set over over a period of like let's say twenty five years. You know, 25 years where you've had all, what happens to these brothers when they say, well, you know, hell, man, I don't want to coach shit, you know. I think you have to work very hard to keep it, the ceiling where it is now. I think you really have to work hard to keep it from being, you know, like 18, you know, brothers who are head coaches. 18 general managers, which you think is, is almost logical for as long as we've been dominating this stuff. That you don't just be playing and then that's it. You, you as long as you play, hit the ceiling, out. Play, hit the ceiling, out. Yeah, I mean that, that's a, that's an interesting point, no doubt. Um, but but that also assumes that a certain amount of coaches are going to come from the the players' rank and, and, right, right, right. and the professional players' rank. And I, and I don't think that's the case. I think most players, especially the successful ones, they they don't want to continue to coach him. But not all the players are successful players either. I mean, coaches are used to be successful players. So one coach that's in the league now who finally got his opportunity is a Todd Bowles. Okay, right. Todd Bowles played in the NFL. He was not a star player, an all-pro or anything like mm-hmm. that. But he was always respected as um, a, a guy with a high IQ. And then he got into scouting and into coaching and, and look at him now that he's got his opportunities off to a really good start. Um, Even the the guy who just um, replaced Joe Philbin with the Dolphins, Dan Campbell, um, who's not an African-American, but the point being a former player getting an opportunity to be a coach, but not a star player. So that's where kind of you you look at the pool of where the coaches will come from. I think that's where it has to happen. And then to become a head coach, you're talking about coordinators below them and then position coaches. That still is the pipeline. But there are a lot more people in the pipeline now than there used to be. So so you don't hear as much about it being um, as much of an issue because I think that I, I think that the, the Rooney rule has helped open a lot of doors, not only for black coaches, for, but also right, for, exactly. for, a, a, for a lot of coaches. Exactly. The one thing that's interesting about that, what's happened with the Rooney rule, um, is that, and I'm kind of getting off the point here, but the one thing that is interesting to me is that there used to be a time when I first started covering the league for USA Today back in the, the early 90s where a team would have a head coach and vacancy, and they may interview three four people. Now, with the requirement that you have to interview at least one African American, um, they'll do that, but they will interview maybe 14 candidates overall. And so a lot more people are getting in, in front of the decision makers right. to make their case, but um, I don't know if that results in. I mean, it has resulted in some opportunities for some people, but not what you're saying, where it just it's a direct correlation to the numbers of players that there are. Yeah, uh, you know, but the thing is, before we move on, I think you're right. I mean, when you look at the Rooney Rule, the idea I think of the Rooney Rule, and even the idea of black folks in this country that we represent a profound truth, and probably is about about fairness. Oh, for sure. Fairness. Colorblind. I mean, so even there, there could be a lot of people, white guys, whoever, who who just don't have a shot, you know, who would be overlooked. And the idea is that, you know, at some point letting talent and giving everybody a fair opportunity to, you know. And and that's that's great. And that's what that's definitely what we want. But so often what happens, Bill, um, from with the key decision makers, be it the coaches, the owners, the general managers, whoever, um, it, it gets to be a subjective thing of who am I comfortable, who am right. I comfortable right. with. Exactly. So you, me, someone else can sit in front of the same person and have, and that person come away with three different opinions about how competent we are to do the job, just based on their own perception right. and and of course which includes biases that we all have to, to some degree so how do you really get that fairness you, you have to kind of step outside of your box sometimes right. to exactly. recognize and and be 
you know, respectful of someone having a different point of view. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Taking you inside the games we love. This is Bill Roden on Sports. A couple couple things, man. I know you got to rush to the... No, we're cool, we're cool. Yeah. Um, two things. Uh, one, I want you to talk about how you got in this business, but before that, I want to give the people who are like football junkies a little <laughs> fix. about what, what do you think? Football fix. Huh? Football fix. Uh, you know, I saw you in I saw you in Pittsburgh uh, last week, the, mm-hmm. the Michael Vick game. Mm-hmm. Um, just what are, what are your thoughts on Vick? Uh, sort of sum- summarizing, you know, looking at that going forward. Yeah, I, I think, you know, Vick had a a pretty decent game the other night when you you look at it from start to finish. Now, he didn't make the pass that could have kind of <laughs> right. sealed the victory right. for him. So, right. I mean, that's what it comes down exactly. to. Exactly. You got to make but, the play. But um, if I had to have a backup quarterback, I don't know who I'd rather have right. than Michael Vick right now. And that's mm. and, and that's a credit to him and the experience he's had in the league. And, uh, you know, I know there are a lot of questions about a, a couple things with Michael Vick that, that kind of have – carried over from previous years one is he going to prepare and 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 do what he needs to do from a playbook standpoint to execute what they need to and I think he showed against Baltimore in that one game with like two or three days worth of preparation that he can handle the offense and work through it so it'll be really interesting to see what he does uh this weekend when they play at San Diego Mm -hmm. because he'll have had a week plus the couple days they got from playing on a Thursday night. So they'll have about nine or ten days worth of preparation. The other thing that he did that was impressive was he didn't turn the ball over. And that has really been, you know, the big bugaboo for for Michael Vick in recent years is that he sometimes was was careless with the football. So he's in an offense that um, really kind of went through – an evolution when Todd Haley came in and worked with Ben Roethlisberger and they they emphasized the short passes or, or at least the quick pass. They still take their deep shots when right. Vic had some of those as well. But I remember talking to Roethlisberger and Haley about it a couple years ago about how they were, you know, envisioning where the offense was going to go. And it was a tough adjustment for Ben. But guess what's happened with Ben in this offense is that um, – he hasn't been hurt until now. Right. So he had two years where he was healthy, and I think part of that was because of the way the system was built. So now Michael Vick takes that offense, and I think they will have a chance to be successful over these next few weeks with Michael Vick at quarterback. I mean, bottom line, because right. guess what? He's got Le'Veon Bell, who was, you know, right. Bill, when I was watching the game, I was like, this is the best running back in the yeah, NFL. Right. It's right. Le'Veon Bell. I mean, you yeah. know, that mantle changes yeah. from, you know, time to time right. over a year, if it's two years, three years. But I think right now, Le'Veon Bell is the best running back in the NFL, and I'm not just saying that because I went to Michigan State <laughs> and he went to Michigan and he, State. And he might have the best receiver. Oh, right, Antonio Brown. Yeah. Right. Now, you can make a lot of... I'll yeah, just say yeah, Mike. Yeah, yeah. I'd I, 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 I start with Julio Jones. Yeah, I, I, I was but, the, kid, but, the kid in the line is having but, but, but I mentioned Brown's in the yeah, top. I was, I was talking the other day. The kid here in New York Le'Veon, is having a Le'Veon Bell and Brown, those are two... Probably two skill skill guys with the best feet at yeah. their positions. Oh, yeah. The thing about Brown that is so impressive is how... He is able to shake coverage with his quickness and his moves and his precision. That's the thing that's impressive about him. One thing about uh, when we talk about all these receivers, boy, if you can kind of have a composite oh, right, right. where you could put together different parts of and, and create the perfect receiver, <laughs> right. I take you know Julio Jones's physicality, right? right? You know, De- Des Bryant's a heart and fire, right? right, right. Uh, Beckham's you know hands, hands right? <laughs> Antonio Brown's. And you, and you left out uh, Calvin Johnson. Yeah, yeah. Somehow. Well, he ca- yeah, we got to get him. <laughs> Calvin, he, in the big moments, he's got to Uh-oh. get us. But, but let me ask you something, just because, you know, um, Jamal and Pat are huge Jets fans. So, so give them give them something good. I mean, give them you know give them some sense of some hope and encouragement about the Jets. Oh, hope and encouragement is there. And Todd Bowles is is going to figure out how to get the be- and they're going to get better. Sheldon Richardson's coming back, right? Right. So the thing about 
Todd Bowles and what he's done with his defense. And you go back to, to Arizona last year to really see how it worked over the course of the season, but he's doing it with the Jets now as well, is that um, he is so crafty when it comes to designing those blitzes and figuring out things to take away the, the strength of the offense and really just make you know life difficult on quarterbacks. And b- by that, you know, Rex Ryan, we've seen him come up with all sorts of creative blitzes too. So Ty Bowles is in that same category and, and maybe over time might end up having a reputation of being you know even better at creating those exotic blitzes. And so that's the one thing. But exotic blitzes don't work unless you have somebody who can cover right. and they've got that too and right. now they've got the front line. And then here's the other thing that really when you start talking about um, what to really be optimistic about. Okay, so we know they got defense and he's made that defense better as we can see it, right? But guess what? They've got the physical presence on offense and that offensive line has been mauling people Mm -hmm. and protecting, (laughs) you know, Ryan Fitzpatrick, okay? And you got Chris Ivory, big physical runner. So it may not be sexy. And then you got Brandon Marshall who, you know, is is a – And and Brandon Marshall's a big-time player. He's probably – um, you know the one star player that you really it, it makes you scratch your head because he's been on like been to like four teams right, right. And, right. but he is a supreme talent and, and so they've got a lot of different pieces in place but just to get back to, to why you really should be optimistic is because that defense is complemented by an offense with a style that can allow you to win so you don't have to throw the ball 40 times a game 50 times right. a game and if you can do that you can stay in a lot of football guys. Right. What do you what do you think about Geno Smith, a guy we haven't mentioned in a while for some reason. I guess they're three and one. Yeah, yeah. And I think the same thing that Todd Bowles said recently is that, you know, this is Ryan Fitzpatrick's job right now. Right. And you can't really go back and, right. and do that in terms of um putting Geno back in the lineup right now. Now if they were 0 and four, one and three, then you could have a lot more to discuss. Um and obviously I don't see what happens on the practice field. So moving forward, that's where Geno Smith is going to have to make his impressions. And then if something happens to Fitzpatrick, which inevitably, knock on wood, happens to so many quarterbacks in the NFL, yeah, you get an opportunity to step in there, right, like Michael Vick. And and then from there – Okay, right. you got your you shot. You, but think, you, right. you figure with uh, with uh, Gino, it can't get worse. Yeah, but it, it already has. <laughs> but it, it can. Has, but it, it can. Has jaw broken. Yeah, but the thing the thing with Gino, I mean, there's a couple things. A, I mean, he, he he's a young quarterback, so he's going to have to grow uh-huh. as, as it is, right? And under a lot of pressure coming in with the profile that he did and having the opportunity, but he didn't always handle himself as well as he should have when you start you know, breaking down the decisions. And so whenever he gets that next shot, he's going to have to show that he can cut out the you know, the real bad mistakes because that's what you think about with Geno Smith. Exactly. I mean, Geno Smith has got a great arm. Geno Smith is, he has, has got mobility. You know, I mean, he's not Cam Newton, right? right? But, right. you know, when you think about Geno and what the statement is, and what it's been since he's been in the league, it's been okay. Those big mistakes, right? And what worries me about Geno is that he never even really put it together in college. Like these other guys, Cam, you know, they might have t- taken a while in the NFL, but they they had put it together in college. They were the man. Yeah. And Geno struggled. Remember, they he lost about seven games in a row in college. Yeah. So that yeah. bothers me whether he really has what it takes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. You know, also, I mean, there's no giants in the room here. There's no, you know, I keep telling people. Uh, Aki was just asking you, know, well, who's your team? And I don't know if you feel like this. I don't have a team. No, no, Are I don't. Me? What, uh, could, you, could you remember the last time you were a fan? What age the last time you were actually a fan? <laughs> oh, people, people are stunned by I mean, you know. Well, that, that's, I guess it's, it's interesting because when I was in Dallas working for the team newspaper, um, there was uh, a certain attachment to well, yeah. the 1980s Cowboys. But, you know, when I grew up um, – you know, I kind of liked the, my hometown Lions, and mm. uh, you know, I was a I was more of a baseball fan, which I don't even watch baseball now. Mm. But I was a real big Tigers fan. That was probably um, the, the the one team that I was a fan of. And then the other team that I'm a fan of right now in my lifetime mm. is my Michigan State basketball team. Oh, okay. okay. Now I like the football team too, <laughs> right. and and I follow them, but. Yeah. 
basketball is like after the NFL season's mm. over with, I'm at home, I'm watching March Madness, we're always in the mix, right? Mm. Man, so I was up in East Lansing a couple years ago for a journalism seminar, and I was tickled to death when I looked in the audience, and guess who was there? Izzo. Tom Izzo came out, came over from the basketball right. building to check out this uh, right. this little Q and A thing, and we talked afterwards and stuff. And um, it, so I'm a big, and I've been up there for you know a, a handful of games too over the, the past few years. So that's the team that I still root for, like I'm a fan. Because when I went to school, Bill, uh, we were hot. That was back when Magic was there. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, real yeah. hot. Yeah, uh-huh. we were hot. And so, I'm, <laughs> so I'm still like feeling right. all that. And I, and, I, and I told Magic one time uh, not too long ago, I was like, man, you know, you've given me like years worth of bragging rights. You know? uh, no kidding, but forever. Those, yeah. those, those are actually and, eternal. That's emeritus. Yeah. And, <laughs> and now Michigan State's basketball team is like a football team every year. Oh, yeah. And they don't yeah. play. Oh, yeah. Big time, yeah. big time program. And we yeah. just got a new recruit here a, a few days ago. So it's yeah, that, that, uh, definitely that, been yeah. something. That They're is, always fine. Yeah. Don't worry about them. Yeah, this was a great guy. For everything I've understood professionally, he always just seems like of all the coaches who you – kind of run across. I mean, Izzo always has uh, just seemed to be really a good guy. Didn't seem to be like, like you know, some of these guys, man. Not Too egotistical, yeah. You know, like, well, I don't mention that. But people... When you hear too much about how great you are, some of these cats really, really believe that shit. And Izzo really seems to be a pretty down to earth guy. Yeah, and and think about a few years ago when the Cleveland Cavaliers wanted to hire him mm-hmm. as a coach. I mean, right. a lot of coaches would take that opportunity to jump to the NBA, and the dollar is going to be bigger, and and your profile is going to be bigger, and everything. And Izzo, and of course, as as a Spartan alum, I'm glad he stayed at Michigan State. But I think it says something. To, you know, that really kind of you know resonates with what you just said about what type of guy he is, and sometimes you kind of know where you best fit. Mm-hmm. And I think he realized that. And I remember talking to Steve Mariucci about it, who's like his mm-hmm. his big time guy, his partner, and all of that, and old time friends and roommates and all of that. But that was the thing that that really kind of you know defined Tom Izzo, knowing kind of who you are and and where where you're best effective, as opposed to trying to lead to the NBA. Mm-hmm. Let me let me just one. Last thing, you, you before we went on there, you told a really fascinating story. I'm always curious about how people got in this business. As long as we've known each other, I can't remember. I I, I got to figure we talked about how we got in, uh, how we got in the business. But how how did you get in this business? Yeah, yeah, and you know the thing that I was uh, alluding to was my cousin Larry Bethea, mm-hmm. and Larry. Um, grew up in Newport News, Virginia, mm-hmm. which is Michael Vick's hometown. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, in that area, man. Right. The players, oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And so it's funny, like when I go back there and I talk to my relatives and stuff, and I'm always talking to them. And, and when I go, you know, it's like, oh yeah, Iverson's sister was over here the other day. <laughs> my, and one of my cousins, in fact, tells me the story about how she woke up and um, there was all this racket going on in her living room, and she walked in there and it's like Allen Iverson and her <laughs> son and a couple other boys making all this noise. And, like, it's two o'clock in the morning. You know that's what. So um, yeah, that area um, is uh, is definitely a hotbed, and you know Bruce Smith from right. from Norfolk and the whole thing. But uh, but yeah, my cousin was from there, and I grew up in Detroit, mm-hmm. and he ended up going to Michigan State. And even though I knew him, you know, growing up because because of our families and stuff, did really didn't know him until he went to Michigan State, and. He basically took me under his wing, and we established this great friendship when he was in college. And so, sure enough, I followed him to Michigan State. So when I was a freshman, he was a senior, and he was the Big Ten's mm-hmm. uh, MVP, not just defensive MVP. He was the first defensive player since Dick Buckus to be MVP of the, of the Big Ten. And he got drafted in the first round by the Cowboys in 1978. And he went to Dallas, and sure enough, he opened that door for me as well in terms of exposing me to the Cowboys and the other players and people in the front office and so on and so forth. So when I got out of college, I moved to Dallas. Mm. Moved to Dallas on a Monday, which was <laughs> right after they got clobbered in San Francisco, 45 to 14, so I remember all these little details. <laughs> but um, the Cowboys hired me on that Tuesday, a part-time job, writing for the team newspaper. Mm. And then by the end of the week, Bill, and you'd really appreciate this, I got offered a full-time job by the Dallas Times-Herald to cover high schools. Mm. And so within a week, I had a couple things going that kind of launched my career. So, you know, my my cousin committed suicide back in 1987, and it's like the, the most tragic thing that 
I definitely have ever had to experience and, and as well as so many other people in, in, our, in my family. Um, but he really kind of laid the foundation for me. So all of these years later, I will, you know, it, it was a great experience to, to be around the Cowboys. And like I said, this mm. was during the 80s. So mm. this was Tom Landry. I was there mm. one year when when Jerry and Jimmy came there but so most of the time there it was in the 80s and it was Landry and it was kind of you know up and then you know right. steadily going right. down right. so I got to experience a lot of that but um, really getting on the inside of pro football from that standpoint because at that time the, the weekly uh, newspaper's office was right there uh, in the team headquarters and so you got to see everything from a day to day uh, basis so I started part-time with them for a number of years worked covering high schools and 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 when you move to a new city there's nothing like getting to know a new area like covering high schools right mm -hmm. and um you know like remember marvin washington of course yeah i covered him in high school man <laughs> <laughs> the big the defensive end for the jets yeah well marvin played for kimball high school mm -hmm. right he was a center mm -hmm. on this team that advanced deep into the state yeah. tournament and i covered high school basketball girls high school basketball fran harris was was at south oak cliff and she ended up going to texas and being a big time player so anyway all of that just to say that's kind of how it all started wow. and then a few years after launching that I ended up working full time for the Cowboys for a few years back back in the mid 80s after after my cousin had actually left town and that just kind of um, really got me established and I left uh, I left Dallas in 1990 to go cover the 49ers oh, and the okay. 40, cover the 49ers for the Marin Independent Journal which was owned by Gannett which is the company that owns USA Today and that was pretty fascinating too because the 49ers were hot yeah, they were going for a three-peat yeah. when I went there and this is an era when you know Steve Young is ready to supplant Joe Montana mm. and then there's Ronnie Lott there's Jerry Rice there's mm. Charles Haley so really some good experiences that that kind of um, set me up for everything that's, that's happened at USA Today. Yeah, you know what what comes through is is you really, you know, you have a passion for for obviously your job at the game, you know, which is interesting in the context of you know, some people trying to outlaw football. <laughs> right. that, I mean, really, there's you know, but you really have a passion for the game. Well, the the thing that I think all of these experiences and especially. Um, growing up really with Larry and growing up with the Cowboys Bill it used to be a deal with the Cowboys like I had I don't know 15 big brothers on the team right mm. Butch Johnson getting mm. on me about how I'm dressing and <laughs> Drew Pearson man you know talking to me about a lot of things and, and Everson Walls and Dorsett so all of those guys mm. were really you know influential on me in, in terms of looking at certain things about how they did things and what it was what they were dealing with and so that gave me a certain insight a certain compassion for them you know one of the things that um, has obviously gotten so much attention over you know recent years has been the effect the long term effects of concussions and head injuries which back in the 80s right. in the 70s and before and, and shoot even in the 90s and the early 2000s was something that people didn't really think much about but we've learned so much more about it um, but it, it also shows the the toll that people, um, you know, sacrifice right. to play football. Now, of course, they sign up for it, but still in all, they are human beings. And I, I think that's the thing that I've always wanted to kind of hang on to as I cover this league is to remember that people are involved here. And not only just the players, but the families and, and and so many other people that are attached to the players. So I, I, I'm, I'm really grateful that I had that part of my experience in, in the developing years to really kind of get it. And then, by the way, you talk about appreciation for football. I remember doing stories on when you, you write for a, a, a team newspaper and then when the team's not doing well, you're writing about so many things. So, so Bill, <laughs> one story I had was on, with Charlie Waters uh. on what – a holder goes through <laughs> on the field goal. I mean, and that's a 20-inch story, man. So you learn so much about certain things that are all integral or, you know, components right. to this bigger picture. Oh, man, this is great. This is my guest has been the great Jared Bell, uh, the uh, NFL columnist, longtime NFL columnist for USA Today, 
great guy, great friend, great stories. We could probably stay another hour here uh, talking about part two. But Jerry, man, I think this is this is so great, man. Uh, maybe this will be the I don't know this will be the highlight. I know you're looking forward to talking to the owners tomorrow. <laughs> but, uh, no, it's just a highlight, bro. I, 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 I would I did want to talk to uh, talk to Paul Allen just about what he thought about the call. But you say he never shows up anyway. Yeah, right? it's interesting at these NFL meetings. Um, <clears throat> you know, most of the owners show up. You know, a, a lot of them show up. That's Snyder too. I, I wouldn't mind having a few words about Dan. The, 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 Are you going to change the name, Dan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Good luck with that. And, and Dan <laughs> Snyder is interesting because in my in my market in Washington. You know, I've seen him kind of go through some changes. He was never really a big um, personable guy with a, right. a personal um, presence, a public presence. I remember one time in his early years of ownership, Dan Snyder used to have these parties in the off season, right? He he uh, ran out a restaurant and it'd be invitation only, and he only invited like. Uh, maybe three or four media people, maybe five or six, right? You know, Will Bond would get in. Uh, <laughs> <invited. laughs> but, you know, our boy Mike would get right. one. But, um, <laughs> you know, he invited me to a number of these parties. He had some other ones during the Super Bowl. And I remember one time he was at his own party and he was up in the balcony overlooking everybody else and he wasn't even like <laughs> mingling with the people it was like okay you guys party right. and I'm over here detached right. so that was the right. thing like you the always gets me. wondered yeah it's wondered like about Dan but you know I think I saw I'm gonna give you a couple quick things about Dan um, because too, too uh, many. yeah well but, no, but ahead, here's the no I actually played racquetball with him we, okay. we got into a conversation about what we do for mm. physical fitness and, and he challenged me to a racquetball game right okay. and so I go out to, to the team headquarters and we're playing racquetball and um, I'm, I'm beating him it's like 8-6 <laughs> it's, a, it's a decent right, game right. we were kind of close um, you know competitors and whatnot. and he stopped so after I'm, I'm up he says I'll bet you I'll bet you $500 <laughs> you won't score another point. And I'm, I'm like, Dan, if I, no, no, I'm like, dude, I don't really have 500 to lose, <laughs> but I should take, he's like, okay, well, let's bet dinner and he named some like right. fancy right. restaurant. Like, I can't even afford, afford that. Let's just play. Right. Um, so, so that was a, a time and a moment where Dan Snyder was approachable and I would right. talk to him. He would, he would call back. We'd right. talk about things. And then, I think the real change came when his father died. Mm. That's what I, I saw with him. Now, I'm not saying that that changed his opinion <coughs> on the team nickname because I think that's been there for a long time. But I saw a change in him personally when when that happened. And mm. that's been at least 10 years mm. in, in terms of how accessible he is. And, and I'm like I said, I'm just throwing it out there. I'm not saying that that, that is what has really changed him, but that's where I kind of saw a difference in changing in, from what to what. Well, I, like I said, I think there was a time oh, the when he was approachability to yeah, yeah. More approachable. Oh, yeah, so you haven't, yeah. play, you haven't played racquetball with no, him. No, we haven't played <laughs> racquetball. I saw him out at um, the team headquarters last year, and and he was coming in and waved and spoke. But I mean, at these NFL meetings, let's get back to that for a quick second. At these NFL meetings, he's always a guy who kind of zips out the back door, or off the side. He doesn't come. You know, t to the areas where the media is is there, and and I remember last year specifically, um, he did pass by where some media was in the hallway, and I kind of you know sidled up to him and I said, "Hey, Dan, I need to really talk to you. Let's get together." He said, "Well, I may do it real soon," and that was a, a, a over a year ago. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, mm -hmm. I'd like to talk to him too because I want to I want to give him a book to read to read <laughs> about the history of Native Americans and yeah. and just become a bit more enlightened about why it's really an issue because sometimes people will. Um, stay so firm in their positions right. and they don't really have the information or the sensitivity. Now, I'm not saying that's the case with him and trying to give him a pass at all, mm -hmm. but I, I think that's where it has to start with him. Mm, yeah. Good luck with that, Jared. Yeah. He's, uh, he's, he's, he remind, I don't want to keep on going on this, harping on this subject, but he reminds me of one of those you know, some of my best friends are black people. You know, I mean, he'll get a couple, you know, he, you know he's got this whole Native American group yeah. And he says, "Well, hell, they're not offended." Oh yeah. So I said, "Man, you know, call me back when you get some consciousness." Yeah. You know? Yeah. But, but but the one thing the one thing that I would say is encouraging mm -hmm. from a long term standpoint about this mm -hmm. is that there are other NFL owners, and I know them because they have told me privately how they feel about it, and they want to see a name change. Now I don't know if it's enough to say that they could 
you know really have the the, the, the power to do that but they mm. could they could have an influence and I know there are a number of them and some are you know pretty influential but there's a couple different views there because just like there are these owners there's probably some right. others saying hey Dan stick to your guns this is your trademark and right. so on and so right. forth but that and the fact that it's been struck down by the courts is really being offensive and right. and you know something that can't be protected legally is another good thing and the final part of it is the Oneida Nation you have an opposition group that really really has the financial resources and the wherewithal to stick with this for the long haul. All right. Well, I'm not going to make the mistake I made when I was at four and I cheered for the Calvary. <laughs> I'm for the Indians. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so so for, for my book is always going to be the Washington you-know-who. Yeah, yeah. we live and learn, right? Right, right? Yeah. Hey, Jerry, thanks so much, man. This has been great. You know, I appreciate great, it, great. dude. All right, man. You take care and keep the faith. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.